So good morning. My name is Leslie Rowe and I'm on staff here at Blenton North. And we are in the middle of a series on gospel stories. So we've had a lot of different people speaking. They've chosen their own story from one of the gospels so that we can look at the words and the actions of Jesus and we can learn more about who he is and therefore how who, therefore who we should be. I wanted to tell you a couple of things about the book of Mark that I think will be helpful for us as we talk through this story today. So Mark was one of the first accounts written about Jesus. And you may or may not know this, but none of the gospels are signed. And so all of the gospels start out being anonymous because we don't know who wrote them, why don't we do some of the other ones that are very obvious. However, there is a lot of church tradition about who wrote them. And when I say tradition, I don't mean that, oh, we picked this and just decided this was who wrote it, and so that's what we've believed this whole time. I mean, people way back that were eyewitnesses that knew the writing was from said, this is who wrote this book, and that got passed down. It was reliable information. And so who's been linked to the book of Mark is John Mark, who you find especially in the writings of Paul. He was a co-worker of Paul, but you may not know that he was also a close partner with Peter. And if you look at, um, if you look at the first chapter, the first verse of Mark, it starts like this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That is the purpose of Mark's book, is he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. What is different about his book is that is the only time he will tell you that in this book. He doesn't write any commentary. What he does is he tells you about the words and the works of Jesus and how people respond to that and then lets you come to your own conclusion about who you think Jesus is. So the question the book of Mark is asking all the way through is, is Jesus the Messiah and is he your king? Have you accepted him? Have you believed in him? This is also often referred to as Peter's gospel because much of the information in Mark was eyewitness testimony from Peter that Mark has written into this gospel. And then just a little bit about the way it's set up. It starts in Galilee, and what he's trying to get you to see is who Jesus is or who is Jesus. It ends in Jerusalem, and what he wants you to see is how does Jesus become king? And then there's a section in between those two that are just on the way between Galilee and between Jerusalem. And that deals more with the disciples struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be Messiah. So remember, the ending is gonna, the ending of the book of Mark is gonna force you to ask yourself, Will I recognize the crucified Jesus as my king? And I think that's important to reading through. I think it's also um, important to recognize, you've heard a lot of people say, other people have picked stories from the book of Mark, that Mark just kind of goes like this. It just starts off with a bang and goes. And that's because 
Mark is letting the actions and story of Jesus talk for itself. And so it feels very fast and very urgent. And Mark is concerned with the meaning, not the order of things. So he has arranged things, not in chronological order, but in, but in an order that best suits the meaning of Jesus. Okay, so that's enough background. We're going to start in chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and stood him up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind come out only by prayer and fasting. So one additional piece of information about this story is we've seen Jesus heal other possessed people in scripture. However, this demon that this child had was considered particularly hard to cast out because they believed that you had to learn a demon's name before you could cast it out. And if a demon made someone mute, how were you ever gonna learn the demon's name? And so someone who was mute was just considered to be possessed for life, like there was nothing we could do about it. And so that gives you a little bit of insight into why um, people thought this was such a difficult demon to get rid of. So who are the characters? So the characters in this story are arguing scribes, a distraught father, a demon-possessed boy. It also says um, an impure spirit, an unclean spirit. That's other words that are used. 
defeated disciples in a watchful crowd. Those are the characters. And how do we see Jesus interact with each of them? Well, we see that he silenced the scribes, that he comforted and corrected the father. He healed the boy. He set him free, which is what one of our songs talked about this morning. He instructed the disciples and he demonstrated his power and compassion to the crowd. So as you think through those characters and you think through how Jesus interacted with them, who are you in this story? Are you the teachers of the law? Are you arguing about what's happening? Are you the father who needs comfort and is distraught and is desperate? Are you the boy who's bound up, who's in a prison of demon possession? Are you a disciple who has no idea why you can't cast this demon out and is quite frustrated about that? Or are you the crowd who's looking on? I want to tell you this morning two points that I believe tell what the good news in this story is. And then my third point, I want to make this a personal application. So the first point is belief and unbelief can coexist or belief is not the absence of doubt. I really struggled with how to word this one because there is an unbelief that is a rebellion against or a rejection of God. And that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the unbelief that we see in this father who does not seem to be rebelling against God or rejecting God, but just has some doubts. But he doesn't deny God's power. As a matter of fact, he desires God's power to work in his child's life. And we see this coexistence in other places in scripture. We see it in Peter when Jesus told him to walk to him on the water. Peter had faith to get out of the boat and to walk to Jesus on the water. But when he started looking around, he said, I am walking on water and this should not be happening. And he starts to sink. He starts to doubt. But they coexist together. We see it in Thomas, who said he wouldn't believe unless he could put his finger in the nail holes in Jesus' hands and put his hand in Jesus' side. Yet he had enough faith to stay with the disciples until Jesus appeared again. So again, we see those two things coexist. In Psalms, like Psalm 73, we see Asaph wrestle out loud with his doubts. And if we're honest, we all too frequently see it in ourselves, which is why we relate so much to this father and his prayer. It's not that we have to have a perfect faith with no doubts. In Matthew's account of this story, when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't cast out this demon, he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus didn't tell them to have a perfect faith. He didn't tell them that their faith needed to be big. As a matter of fact, 
he picked one of the tiniest, smallest things you could imagine, a mustard seed, to say, if you have this much, look at what I can do in your life. Jesus, in this story, is gentle with the Father, but he does correct him. He doesn't ignore that the Father has doubt. Rather, he points it out. He's a good doctor. A good doctor, if she tells you you have cancer and you choose to just ignore that, she's going to get a little more assertive with you. And she's going to say, you cannot ignore this. Why? Because it will kill you. And Jesus knows that he can't ignore the doubt because doubts that aren't dealt with will kill our faith. It's dangerous to have doubts we don't deal with. It's dangerous to just ignore them. And so Jesus corrects him because he is a good, good father. He also did the same thing for Peter and Thomas. He pulled Peter out of the water. He showed Thomas his hands and his side, and he honored this father's belief as small as it was and set his son free. Belief is not the absence of doubt. I want to be better at this in people's lives. I want to not run when people say they have doubts. I don't want to try and answer all their doubts, but I do want to help them deal with their doubts so that their faith doesn't die. I want to do better at that. So what do you believe about Jesus and what doubts do you have? Let your prayer be the same as this father's. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. So that's the first piece of good news in this story. Belief is not the absence of doubt. The second piece of good news is that evil should never be minimized, but neither should God's power to deliver us. Evil should never be minimized, but neither should God's power to deliver us. I think one of the purposes of this story has to be to convince us how evil evil is. It's impossible to read this story and wonder if evil's really so bad after all. Look at what it's doing to this boy. It's throwing him into the fire and into the water and trying to kill him. It's ugly, it's destructive, and we should never minimize it. I also think there's a more accepted kind of evil that is shown in this story. The teachers of the law, instead of trying to cast out the demons themselves, choose to argue with the disciples about why they couldn't. This was about making the disciples look bad. It was about winning an argument. Where was their compassion for the boy? Where was the desire to at least try and help him? The disciples at least tried. And Jesus freed him from the prison he was in. And if we want to be like Jesus, 
We will never stand by criticizing other people that are trying to help when we see suffering. We will be compassionate and we will do everything we can to help because that's what our God does. And while we may not know what to do to help, he does. And we don't work off of our own power, we work off of his. And it is evil to not have compassion in the face of suffering. The second purpose of this story is to convince us that Jesus is the only place deliverance can be found. It's meant to point out how destructive evil is, but also to assure us that no matter how powerful evil is, God's delivering power is greater. Jesus set this boy free. He gave him back to his parents whole. He delivered them of their nightmare. He is more powerful than evil is. Yeah. I want you to think with me for a minute. What do you think is behind most of our doubts? I'll give you a second just to think about that. What do you think is behind most of our doubts? I would suggest to you that it's fear. Usually because we can't comprehend a solution to whatever it is we're facing that we have doubts about. Whether that's a loved one that has a complicated illness, whether it's a relationship that needs to be reconciled, injustice, people without housing, sexual assault, marriage problems, the inability to have a baby, the loss of someone close, feeling like you're held in a prison of depression and anxiety. Whatever it is, fear is generally the core emotion. And Isaiah says in chapter 55, verses eight and nine, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do we really want a God who works in ways we can understand? He wouldn't be a very big God, would he? We can't understand everything God is doing. He could tell us and we still wouldn't understand. That's where our belief comes in that he is the delivering power. So do you believe God's delivering power is greater than fill in the blank for yourself? What is it that you have a hard time believing his delivering power is not great enough? And then answer it with Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for his voice everywhere you go in everything you do. Yeah. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume you know it all. Right. Run to God and run from evil. Run to the God who can deliver us from evil. Evil should never be minimized but neither should God's power to defeat it. 
For my last point, I want to take this truth that belief and doubt can coexist and that God has the power to deliver us and personalize it. And I want to personalize that for all of us. So point three is, and you're never going to get this all written down. <laughs> point three is, even when a situation is so big, frightening, and complex that we can't imagine a solution, Jesus is able. And I'm going to go back and tell this story from Mark again, but I'm going to tell it from the perspective of the demon-possessed boy's mother. When our first son was born, we were so excited. We had been trying to conceive for two whole years. We named him Mateo because it means gift of God. We enjoyed watching him grow from a little baby to a toddler. When we would open our arms, he would run and jump in and give us the biggest hug. And it was the greatest thing to hear his little voice call for mama or daddy. He was healthy and smart and so sweet. But right after his third birthday, things started to change. He started falling to the ground and foaming at the mouth. That was followed by him thrashing around, grinding his teeth, and then becoming stiff as a board. He also stopped speaking. We stopped hearing that sweet little voice of his. Most frightening of all is sometimes he would throw himself into a fire or into the water. We were desperate to find out what was causing this, but when we finally did, it was too horrible to believe. He was possessed by a demon. How? How could our sweet boy be possessed by such evil? Our healthy, smart, sweet, only child was now mute, unable to live a normal life and an outcast in our village. We prayed. Oh, we prayed alone. We prayed together. We prayed with our friends. We prayed every morning and every night and many other times. But there didn't seem to be any change. We spent years trying to get help for him. We did everything we could. We took him to spiritual leaders, to exorcists, to anyone we heard might know how to free him of this terrible demon, but no one could help him. Oh, we were exhausted from being constantly vigilant. We, we saved him from the fire and we pulled him out of the water many times, but we lived with the constant fear of what if we couldn't get there in time? What if he drowned? What if he burned to death? And who would take care of him when both of us passed on? What would happen to him then? As it was, we took turns staying awake with him night and day. It brought fatigue that was indescribable. All three of us were no longer living. We were just surviving. Financially, we spent everything we had seeking out help for our little Mateo then we also had less time to earn a living because we could never leave him alone. But I think the worst thing for me was the shame. 
It seemed impossible to me that Matteo had somehow sinned in all of this. He was just too little when this started to be guilty of sin. My husband was a man who lived devoted to God, so I know it must have been me that brought this curse on him. And there were plenty of women in town that were more than happy to back up my guilt-ridden thoughts. I mean, it had to be someone's fault, right? How do I live knowing it's my fault? The year that Matteo turned 12, we started hearing stories about a man named Jesus. The townspeople told of how he healed diseases and even spoke to demons and told them to leave, and they did. We were skeptical at first, but the more we heard, the more we leaned toward trying to find Jesus so we could ask him to help us. The more my husband talked to people, the more faith he had that Jesus was the answer to all of this. We'd tried everything else. What did we have to lose? We began to have just a sliver of hope that perhaps this Jesus could help us. Soon we heard that he would be close to our town. I had recently hurt my leg. I just did something stupid when I was running to get a bucket of water. And I don't know what I did to it, but I could barely put weight on it, much less go for a long walk. So my husband assured me that he would take Mateo and find Jesus and see if he could help. So they set off and they found Jesus' disciples, but they couldn't find Jesus. So they asked his disciples, they pleaded with the rabbi's disciples for help, but they were no more effective than anyone else had been. The scribes that were present began berating the disciples for not being able to heal our son. My husband's hopes were quickly fading and he decided just to bring Mateo back home. But just then someone shouted that Jesus was coming. Now let me ask you a question. What is the demon-possessed boy in your life? What is it in your life or in the world that you are afraid Jesus can't heal or make right? I'll tell you what mine is. It's my family. We've been beaten and battered by something we never saw coming. It's fractured relationships. It's caused division. It's caused pain and loss like I've never felt before. My heart is shattered, and fear tells me it can never be fixed. When I read this story, I am this father. I'm desperate. I'm scared. I don't want to get my hopes up only to have them crushed. See, the father's unbelief had roots in his unique experience. He was vulnerable in deeply personal places to losing his fight for faith. And when I approached Jesus about my deeply personal fears and heartaches, my prayer sounds very much like this man's. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus 
Jeff Lee corrects me with, if I can, everything is possible for the ones you, who believes. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that Mark is asking the question, will you recognize the crucified Jesus as your king? And even in the midst of my fear and my doubt that our family can be fixed, my answer is yes, yes, a hundred times yes. Jesus is my king. He has proven himself faithful time and time again, and I have no reason to doubt that he won't this time. <laughs> if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful." And when fear gets the best of me and causes me to doubt, my prayer will be, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word that is personal in our lives. I thank you for the way that you show us that God can deliver us from any evil and that he is the source of all of our healing. I thank you that we don't have to have a perfect faith. I thank you that we can have doubts and be fearful. And I thank you that you're worthy of our belief and of our trust. God, I pray for people sitting in this room today that have things in their life that they're scared to trust to you, just like I do. And I pray, God, that in spite of our fear, that we wouldn't give in to the kind of unbelief that separates us from you, that we would realize that you are our only hope and our only answer, and that if things can't be fixed in this world, then when we are with you for all eternity, you will right everything that sin has broken, that you will restore it, and that we will enjoy that for all eternity with you. You are faithful, you are good, you are just, you are powerful, and we worship your name. I pray, I mean, I pray, I ask that you guys would let this story speak to you this week. I pray that you would read it again and that you would imagine what it would have been like to be different people in this story. I pray, I ask that you'll look at how Jesus interacted with people in the story. What do you learn about how he loves people? How did people react to him? Answer the question, do you recognize Jesus as your king? And if the answer is no, answer the question, what is holding you back? And talk with somebody about that. The stories about Jesus in the Gospels are real. They will touch you personally if you take the time to get into the story and not just read over it and move on. Ask Jesus to help you personalize the stories and the good news of his Gospel because it is good news.
Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.